Anybody here ever heard the name A.J. Jacobs? Anybody know who that is? How many of you know the phrase method actor? Somebody that takes a role and goes into that role and doesn't break character the whole time. Um, Famously, uh, Tom Hanks in Castaway kind of just became that character. Marlon Brando used to do that some, where they just become the person and they don't break character even when they're not shooting and that kind of thing. Well, A.J. Jacobs is not a method actor, but I would call him a method writer. He's an author. And he has written several things in recent years, but when he does, he invests his entire being into researching it. For instance, he wrote a book several years ago called Mr. Know-It-All, and he decided he would read Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z in a year and write about his experience. He was writing for a magazine, and they wanted him to write on outsourcing and how it's impacting America. And so he outsourced everything in his life. Somebody in India replied to all of his emails, recalled, made all of his phone calls, chatted with his wife, texted his wife, ordered his food, everything. He outsourced to write an article about outsourcing. He was following a movement called Radical Honesty. And he said that so for a month he lived radically honest. He said not just not telling a lie, but whatever came into his mind, he said. The title of the article was, You Look Fat and Other Things I Had to Admit in Radical Honesty. He said the outsourcing month was the greatest month of his life because he didn't do anything. And the Radical Honesty month was the worst month of his life. And then he got this idea one day talking about his strange uncle. Now, he grew up um, Jewish But to quote him in his book, um, saying he was Jewish is kind of like saying that the Olive Garden is authentic Italian, all right? It's not really that. He he grew up, he said, I didn't have any religion. I didn't go to church. He said he went to some bar mitzvahs. He heard about some stuff, but he didn't grow up religious at all. But he began, he he had a child, and he began to think, I've got to figure out if this religion stuff is, you know, what's about. So he decided, because he had an uncle, he said, that tried every religion he could imagine, and one year decided he was going to live as an Orthodox Jew, this uncle. So this guy decided he would live a complete year exactly like the Bible said, from Genesis to Revelation. He said that the majority of the book was the Old Testament, so he would start there and live eight months out of the year completely by the Old Testament and then another four months by the New. Now, he meant every way he said now some things were not allowable by law for instance he couldn't slaughter animals for sacrifice but in every way possible he did and it caused some unique situations if we're honest we've all broken levitical law like recently right anybody eating bacon this week pork of any kind right Anybody wearing any clothing that has more than two fibers, different kind of fibers, right? So he decided he would just live like the law said. So he only wore clothing made of one fiber. He did not eat pork. He did not eat shellfish. He grew a beard out pretty long. He said the real difficulty came because there, we're going to be a little delicate here, all right? He's married, 
And there were certain times each month when he could not sit on anything his wife had sat upon. And his wife would make a point during those times to sit in every chair of the house. And so he went and bought one of those little pop-up chairs. And he said, just riding the subway, he couldn't know whether or not he was sitting where he wasn't supposed to sit. So he carried a little chair with him in the subway and sat down. Okay? Now, I titled the book, The Year of Living Biblically. What's interesting about it is I, I haven't read the book fully. I've read some discussions of it. I, I don't think, at least from what I read, that he became a born-again Christian in the midst of it. He did gain a healthy respect for the Bible as something he didn't know. But it's interesting to read about somebody doing that because that isn't even something we think about. I'm going to bet that not many of you got up this morning and made sure you were living according to Levitical law. None of us have a checklist. He, he said he went through and just reading the Bible, he made a checklist of things that he could or could not do. And it was 47 pages long. Matthew chapter 5. Thinking, why are we talking about that? Go to Matthew chapter 5. All right, Jesus has begun. We started with the Beatitudes, right? Everybody loves the Beatitudes. That's where we started. It was a description of who we are. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. It's about who you are. Even the salt and light chapter was about who we are. We are the salt. We are the light. He doesn't give any immediate clarification or any immediate application. He just says, be the salt, be the light, be who you are. And then he's going to, in the next phase, begin to switch and say, because of who you are, this is what you should do. And the meat of the Sermon on the Mount is him saying, because of who you are, this is what you should do. It's kind of like, um, I remember when my dad dropped, us, dropped me off at Union. Um, it was one of the times in my life I remember my dad being pretty emotional. And I mean, I mean, I was moving 45 minutes away from home, right? Half, you know, half an hour if you didn't obey the speed laws, all right? But Dad, one of the things he said to me, I remember in, in my union dorm room, I'm there and they're getting ready to leave and all that kind of stuff. And we decided, we went to dinner and we came back, but we were going to do it quick. We were going to make it a drawn out thing. We are going to see each other in a week or so. And he starts to leave and he just says, remember who you are and where you're from and act like it. All right? How many of you ever heard something like that or said something like that, right? Remember who you are, where you're from, and act like it, okay? Jesus is basically saying to the people, if you're one of my followers, this is who you are, this is where you're from, act like it. Do what you're supposed to do. And so some people were beginning to get a little nervous about Jesus because in that day and time, the most important thing in the Jewish life were their laws and customs. They would have argued with people it was said even in that day and time jewish people would have rather lost their nation than their laws and customs in fact the romans come in right and the romans are going to attack and the jews know they can't fight them but they bargain so that they can keep doing their jewish things while the romans invade and occupy that's why when you get to jesus's day even though it's Roman-occupied territory, it is acting, functioning very much like a Jewish community because they fought so hard for that. And they would say that 
The most important identity we have as a people, the law and the prophets. It's kind of like in America, we look back at a document and say, you know, especially um, this discussion's out there uh, really uh, kind of boldly in the last couple of years with the Tea Party movement. The Tea Party, we're back to the Constitution. And people saying, well, what did the Constitution say? And we're, there are... Um, people that read it and how it was originally interpreted and how it would be loosely interpreted and all that. But the point is we want to go back to the Constitution. And that is, people. some people would say, a lot of people would say, the foundation of our nation is the Constitution, the backbone of what we do. But they would have been the same way about the Jewish laws. And so as Jesus is going around and teaching and preaching, his preaching about the Jewish laws doesn't sound like the Pharisees and scribes' teachings about the Jewish laws. And so people are starting to kind of question, is he, is he saying we don't follow them? Surely, surely he's not saying we don't follow them. I mean, he sounds like a good teacher, and the Pharisees don't know what to do with him. Because in their day and time, rabbis were all around, but they came through the channels. They, they went to the right schools or the right teachers and lived in the right places and from the right families and teaching the right things. And Jesus blows all of that away. I mean, we sometimes seem to move on from the birth story and forget that Jesus was born to a peasant girl and a carpenter in not good circumstances, so he wouldn't have got a good head start on life. It's not completely comparable, but it would be similar to somebody from the inner city born to parents that didn't have very much at all living in government-subsidized housing suddenly becoming the leader of a major movement. People would question, well, where's he from? What's he teaching? Why is he doing that? So they start asking those questions. And Jesus is going to answer the question before he gets to the meat of the sermon. Because in the meat of the sermon, he's going to tear down the conventional understanding of the interpretation of the law. Right? You can look down. We're going to read the part about, uh, I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill. What starts right after that? Verse 21, what does he talk about? Murder. But he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, and then he reinterprets, right? You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. I say, and he reinterprets. So he's about to get to this point where he's going to reinterpret everything they know about the law. But before he does that, he wants to say, but don't think I'm here to destroy it. Look at verse 17. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. After presenting the radical Beatitudes and the two metaphors of the salt and light, Jesus could understand that some of his listeners were beginning to question what he was teaching and whether it overthrew the Old Testament law. So he says, no, 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 that's not what I'm doing. There have been people since Jesus that have tried to make Jesus say that he did away with the Old Testament law. In fact, there was a guy in the 2nd century named Marcion who said that the Old Testament had been 
done away with by Jesus. It was no longer applicable. We didn't have to read it and to remove it from your Bibles. And he even changed some of the things written in Scripture. So where Jesus, this part right here, completely taken out of the Bible he would give to his followers. Wouldn't even be there. The people that came after them realized that was a problem, so they changed it to where Jesus said that, um, this is what they wrote, I have come not to fulfill the law, but to abolish them. They switched the word. Now, say, well, we don't believe that. I mean, we have our Bibles. It's got the Old Testament and the New Testament in it. But we are in danger sometimes of becoming a phrase called functional Marcionites. Okay? Practical Marcionites. That means that we center our attention and our study and our obedience to the New Testament without referencing the Old. I'll just be honest. As a preacher, as a preacher, it's easy for me to do that. You know why? You know where I'd stay all the time if I could? Jesus and Paul. I could preach Jesus and Paul every Sunday and every Wednesday till the day I die. I love it. I love those things. That doesn't mean I don't like the Old Testament, but I have to be careful not to... Forget Hosea and Malachi, right? Habakkuk, Haggai. And not just the big time stories either, not just David and Moses, but Jephthah. And our kid this week learned about Achan. This Bible study series they're going through, they're going chronologically through the Bible. I don't know that Achan had ever been addressed in kids and preschool curriculum. Y'all know the story of Achan? Joshua, Joshua, they go and they defeat Jericho and don't take anything from Jericho. And Achan does what? He takes some from Jericho, right? Hides it in his tent. And they go up to battle Ai. And what happens? They lose. And they come back. And Joshua starts tearing his clothes. I love this scene. Tearing his clothes. What do I do, God? What do I do? Why did you let us fall? And he says, get up and go find out who stole some stuff. You just get that sense that God's like, quit yelling. It's your own fault. Go find out. You know? I like that passage more and more the longer I'm a parent. Well, Eli, just quit. Did you were you were you punching him like that and he finally hit you? Yeah, and it's on your own fault, all right? So Aiken sin, they uncover it. What do they do to Aiken and his family? They're done. Right. So it led to a conversation with Eli and I about that. But my point is uh, Jesus in this one phrase confirms that the Old Testament is valid and true and ought to be used for study. He validates it. Every year about February, I hear from somebody that's decided this is the year they're finally going to read through the Bible. Some of you were a part of that two or three years ago and we read through the Bible all the way. And the phrase I always get is, the Old Testament is rough. And it is, right? Anybody watch the Bible miniseries? It was rough in points. You know why? Because it was doing the Bible. We, as Susan said, we read, and they went into Jericho and killed everyone there. And it's, oh, okay. They, they marched through Jericho. They killed everybody after the walls fell, and everything's good. But in the Bible series, they showed it, right? Because that, you know, people didn't just magically keel over as they walked through. People say, well, how can it be the same God? Here's what I know. Jesus affirms that it is. He says, don't think I've come to abolish it. I'm not doing away with it. I'm validating it. I'm fulfilling it. So here's a question. How did Jesus fulfill the law? How did he fulfill it? 
He lived it. So first of all, it says in Scripture he was born under the law. That, that's a phrase used for him in Galatians. And it means that he was born under the same law that you and I are born under, the same universal law. But specifically, Jesus was born under the Jewish Levitical Deuteronomic law. And he lived it, there's a key word to add to that, perfectly. So he fulfilled the law by fulfilling the law, by accomplishing it, by doing it. You know, that everything that was written, he did. Now, here's the thing. We have to understand, we're going to talk about this about the Pharisees in a moment. He didn't live it perfectly according to the interpretation of the Pharisees. Right? And they got mad at him. They tried to do something. But he lived it perfectly according to the interpretation of the one who gave it, which is more important. So that's one way he fulfilled the law. How else did he fulfill the law? He taught it. So he he tried to get people to understand the heart of it, what was at it, what was in the midst of it, what the key elements were. He says you can sum up the law and prophets by how? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Okay? So he, he condensed it. He taught it and those kind of things. Three kinds of law there were. Okay? If you just go back to the Old Testament, they fall into three different types of categories. One is the judicial law. Okay? Or the, um, I call it the setting up a government law. Because when the Jews come out of Egypt and they form a nation, they have no laws at all. And you cannot have a society without laws. Anarchy does not work. So you have to have some laws about how people treat each other, how social contracts are done and developed and followed through, and if broken, how you react to that. And so you've got that part of it. How do you set up the nation of Israel? How do you react with one another? A second type of law, and there's moral law. Okay, What's the most famous part of the moral law? What's the most famous part of the law? Ten Commandments, right? It's the only part of the law that gets put on billboards all over, you know, the country. Moral law. Here's how you morally act around other people. This is the basic good and bad, good and evil. It's that basis of, um, C.S. Lewis talks about this internal conscience. Not that it's perfect, because Scripture teaches it's not, but that there is a should in life. You should do this. You should do that. And that is in the moral law. The third one is called ceremonial law. And that is the, the whole keeping yourself clean. Okay? Um, now, some of the food laws are both ceremonial and just for general good health. What was the, why did they need ceremonial laws? Why did they need animal sacrifice in a temple and a tabernacle? Why did they need Yom Kippur and the high holy days? Why did they need Levites and priests? Why did they need all of that? What was the purpose of the ceremonial law? Okay, But for them practically in the moment, what, what, what was the purpose of it? So eventually it points toward Jesus, and we can see that build, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But for a Jew living 400 years before Jesus, Jesus is 400 years away, or 1,100 years before Jesus, what's the purpose of the ceremonial law? Okay, so there's worship, dedication to the Lord. What? Forgiveness of sin, right? Leviticus says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so there's three kinds of law. There's the we need law to govern each other. Okay? There's the moral law that is how everybody from every generation that has ever lived ought to act towards each other. 
and there is the ceremonial law. Okay? So when Jesus says he fulfills the law, first of all, how you set up a country law, we can develop principles. In fact, a lot of our laws are developed on the principles of Judeo-Christian values. You can develop principles, but Israel is no longer a country that has God as its king. Okay? And it hasn't been since the end of the book of Judges. Right? Because they wanted a king. And so this theocracy that God set up, those were the laws of how to relate to one another in a theocracy with Moses as the under-shepherd of God. Okay? So you have those are no longer applicable to a nation that is not built as a theocracy. The United States of America, built by founding fathers who are predominantly Christian, yes, but it was not built as a theocracy where God is the president. Okay? We elect a man to do that. So those laws are no longer applicable. They have been fulfilled. They have been moved past. That doesn't mean they're important. We can't find instruction and principles there, but we don't have to follow them. The moral law is still around, right? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't cheat. I mean, we still think those are pretty good, right? So why not the ceremonial law? Because Jesus paid it, right? Jesus did it. He fulfilled the ceremonial law need for forgiveness of sin. That's one of the ways he says, I have come to fulfill the law. And the reason that every, as he will say, jot and tittle, he didn't say that, but every single word, Yoda, or Yod, was the shortest Hebrew word, and that's what was there, Yod. The reason that that's all important is because A, in Messianic prophecies, it pointed toward Jesus' coming. B, he fulfilled by being perfect in his living of the law. C, he provided the sacrifice as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world after living a perfect life. D, when he rose from the grave, he showed himself victorious over it. And so the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. Okay? Does that make sense? I'm going to tell you right now, okay? I, I almost went to sleep three times reading through about eight passages trying to decipher all that, okay? I told Deborah, Deborah said, I'm glad I'm going to Susan's Bible study tonight because you've almost gone to sleep three times preparing your own message. But it's important. We've got to get those distinctions out there, all right? And so Jesus says, I've come to not to do away with it, but to fulfill it. And then he says this rather shocking statement to them. He says, I tell you, this is in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. For us, that's an easy thing to read because when you hear Pharisee, what do you think? I think bad guy. Right? When I hear Pharisees, I think, ooh, boo, that's the other team. Like a Cardinal fan that hears Cubs, right? You just, boo, the other team, bad guys. Right? No, I'm a Cardinal fan. That's what I have to use, Miss Jones. But in their day, that's not who the Pharisees were to the people. Anybody see who died yesterday? 102 years old. Who was it, Miss Wilkinson? George Beverly Shea. 102 years old. George Beverly Shea has sung for more people in the history of the world than anybody else live. That's a pretty good thing to put on the tombstone, I guess. Especially when you sing what he sang. Who George Beverly Shea worked for for many, many years? 
Billy Graham. That's the reason he sung for more people than anybody ever, because he worked for the guy that's spoken to more people alive than anybody in the history of the world. We live in a day when we're cynical about our leaders, and so if we were to hear that such and such religious leader fell, it might be shocking at a moment, but we go, oh, but that happened. Billy Graham is kind of that different era, isn't he? If you heard Billy Graham had had four affairs, you would be shocked, heartbroken, just cannot believe that, right? I mean, he's that kind of stature. What Jesus is saying to these people in their day, they would have heard similar to somebody saying to you, unless your righteousness is greater than Billy Graham, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who were the people in their day that followed the law most closely? The Pharisees. Remember Paul when he's talking about who he used to be? He said, as far as a Pharisee, a Pharisee, a Pharisee, as far as the law without blemish. Nobody followed the law better. Nobody was held in higher esteem from a religious perspective than the Pharisees. So when he said, unless your faith, your righteousness is better than the Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. Their immediate response would have been, and nobody's going to heaven. You remember the disciples when the rich young ruler comes and he leaves, and in one version of that story, Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth, it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples say, then who can enter? And he says, with man it is impossible, but with God, all things. His point he wanted them to see is that the Pharisees were not who they thought they were. And the point of Jesus coming was to move righteousness from external behavior to internal being. The problem is, we're all a little bit Pharisaic at heart. John Ortberg, who's one of my favorite writers, has talked about the danger of pseudo-transformation. Where come and be separate means just act differently, look differently, talk differently, but there's no real internal change. James Dunn notes that in the first century, a vast amount of rabbinic writing focused on circumcision, dietary laws, and keeping the Sabbath. Isn't it funny that one of the first places Jesus challenges the Pharisees is eating on the Sabbath? Right? they had created these boundary markers that said, listen, if you are going to be a part of our group, you've got to do these things. And that's natural human history. I mean, the fact is, even cultures and subcultures have boundary markers that say you're a part of us or you're not. For instance, if you were driving through Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in the 60s and you came to a stoplight and a Volkswagen van pulled up with a peace sign and make love not war bumper sticker and the people were in long hair, tie-dye, granny glasses, what would you have known? They're hippies, right? Because those were boundary markers or hippies. In the same way, if you were in the 1980s and you pulled up to a stoplight and next to you was a BMW with a guy wearing Gucci shoes and a Rolex watch and his hair was moosed and he was nibbling on some brie cheese, you would know you were next to a, a yuppie, right? Young professional. You pull up to a red light and there's a guy on a motorcycle wearing all black, leather, helmet. Looking like Jeff Rush, what do you know, right? You know, he's a redneck biker, right? Now you, 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 we have these things. And so for the 
people of Jesus' day, the Pharisees had created these things to say, you know you're a part of God's kingdom if you follow these laws. You know why people want to do that? Because they want to know what the rules are so they can check it off themselves. But with Jesus, that wasn't the case. Jesus brought a message that spoke to the deepest longings of humans that it transformed us into new creatures. When asked to identify what the law is about, we've mentioned this. He said, love God and love people. He named fundamentally different way of thinking, not can you do these 18 things. He says, do you love God? Do you love people? Jesus' followers understand that clearly. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth about the significance of having many spiritual markers, but lacking the center. If I speak in tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. John puts it a little more bluntly. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. So this is why the religious leaders of Jesus' day are so put off by Jesus. It's because he was challenging the very understanding. He fought with them often about circumcision and dietary laws and Sabbath and external stuff. Jesus is not disagreeing with them on how to interpret the law. He is threatening the very understanding they have about the law and of God. Today, we have to be careful that we don't become like these Pharisees. One author has said that, The great irony of the day of Jesus is the righteous were more damaged by their righteousness than the sinners were by their sin. Because they thought they had it figured out. And they didn't. There's a place, it's interesting because a little bit later in the Gospels, Jesus will go directly at the heart of what the Pharisees were and thought. He basically says, They have misunderstood true spirituality. Dallas Willard writes, How many people in history are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied? Yet such Christians are everywhere. And what they're missing is the wholesome liveliness springing from a balanced vitality with the freedom of God's loving rule. Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. And what he says is, listen, I'm about to tell you some things about how to interpret the law. Don't think I've come to abolish it. I have it. I'm fulfilling it. But what the Pharisees have been teaching you is not what is real. And I want you to see what is real. A little bit later when he confronts the Pharisees, it's a passage that are called the woe passages. He basically says, don't be like the Pharisees because they're spiritually inauthentic. Woe to you, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They appear on the outside to be spiritual, but the inside is dirty. You ever pick up a bowl or a cup and you think it's clean? And you get it and there was something the dishwasher left for you? Isn't that a bad just kind of feeling? Disgusting, right? Especially if you've already poured something in. It it affects, here's the crazy thing, it not only affects that drink, if you get another cup and drink, it somehow, at least in mine, I may be weird, it affects me drinking the next, that again. So if I pour coffee into a cup and then as I'm pouring it, I say, ooh, there's something in there, and I switch cups, I still, um, call, am I just weird? All right, I'm weird. Jesus says, be authentic, be inside and outside the same. The whole point of the Beatitudes is 
your inner life ought to change and challenge who you are externally. He says, don't be like the Pharisees because they're judgmental, exclusive, and proud. He writes about the Pharisees or says about the Pharisees, they love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogue. He says, your righteousness has to exceed that. Pride is a potential problem for anyone who takes spiritual growth seriously. As soon as we start to pursue a virtue, we begin to wonder why others aren't. I can't believe that they aren't being as spiritual as I am right now. Can't they see that this is the best way to grow? We see that sometimes in ministries. I can't believe people aren't as fired up about this particular ministry as I am. It is the best ministry I've ever done. And how can they not see it? We become proud, judgmental. When beginners become aware of their own fervor and diligence in spiritual works and devotional exercise, it gives rise to a secret pride. They conceive a certain satisfaction in their works. They condemn others in their heart when they see that they're not as devout as they are. I saw Andy Stanley last week in a sermon he was talking. He said, growing up, he kept playing this game of, I'm a Christian, I go to camp, I do all the Christian stuff, and then I kind of drift away, and I go back to camp, and I do all the Christian stuff, and I get more and more Christian. He said, and the thing is, the more Christian I became, the more judgmental I was about the ones that weren't doing it. That great theologian, Homer Simpson, not, not really, all right, but... Ask his neighbor when they come back from church camp, what would you do? He said, well, we went away to Christian camp. We learned how to be more judgmental. Now, I don't think there's actually one of those, but sometimes it seems like that. So don't be like the Pharisees who are unapproachable. He says about them, they love to have people call them rabbi. You know what's crazy? is you read through Scripture, and Jesus is obviously the only perfect human that has ever lived. You can't read the Scriptures without seeing the failings of everybody else. What is fascinating to me, as bright of a light as Jesus was, prostitutes and sinners and outcasts could not stop from coming to Him. He was the most holy man that has ever lived and the most approachable man that has ever lived. Kids, they had to try to get kids away. Kids wanted to see him. You know, some lights in your life will repel you. You know, if like if you, um, you ever been like in a completely dark place and somebody throws the lights on real quick and, you, you know, you light or, or I'm driving kids to school and the sun hits just right and it's just, you almost want to cringe at it. Jesus' light, as bright as it was, didn't have that effect. This is going to be a little bit of a bad example, but his light was almost like the light that you put out for the bugs. All right? You put a bright light out for the bugs, what does it do? It attracts them. I think back to that story, and I talk about the Holy Week of the woman that came and anointed Jesus' feet. From all indications, she was not a good lady. She would have never thought of doing that to one of those Pharisees. She couldn't help herself from doing it to Jesus. Jesus was the most approachable person they had ever seen. And here's the last thing. Don't be like the Pharisees who measure their spiritual life in superficial ways. He tells them, you are blind gods. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. That's graphic, isn't it? Somebody said, suppose someone asks you, how's your 
spiritual life going these days? What's the first thing that comes to mind? He says if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times the first thing that comes to mind is our daily spiritual disciplines. Well, I've been reading this and having this much quiet time and spending this much time in prayer, and it's all external stuff on stuff we can check off that we're doing. But God's primary assessment of our lives is not going to be by how many journal entries we have or how many prayers we have said or how many times we've been in a church building. It's going to be, am I growing in my love for God and for people? I mentioned John Orberg a few minutes ago. John Orberg in his book on spiritual disciplines tells a story of a guy you all may have heard me talk about named Hank. And John Orberg has said in the conference, the guy's name's not Hank but he changed his name to protect the guilty. He said Hank was just mean, cranky. Hank was the kind of guy that he said could find a cloud and a silver lining any day. Now, while other people were excited about life, Hank was nitpicking at the detail. And Hank had a natural language. In fact, John Orberg says his native tongue was complaint. He just had a knack for it. He considered him spiritual gift, the spiritual gift of continual cranial downsizing. Lest someone's head get too big for themselves. And Hank would get on a subject for a while and complain and complain and complain and complain. And a particular one that he got on pretty good was that the music was too loud at the church. So he told anybody that would listen. He told the staff. He told the deacons. He told the Sunday school teachers. He told perfect strangers that walked in the door. In fact, the staff had to call Hank in and say, Hank, it is unacceptable to find people walking in the door for the first time and tell them the music is too loud in this place. That is not serving the purposes of this church. You cannot do that. They thought the problem was over. And then one day, Secretary Buzz, John Ortberg, is pastor, and said, there's somebody out here to see you from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. OSHA. So he goes out to meet him, and he says, I can't imagine having anybody complain. And John Wilberg said in my mind, I'm thinking, what staff person has called in a complaint about working environment and that kind of thing? And he said the guy started talking, and he said, the words kept coming out of rock concert and decibel levels and guitars and drums. And he said, did a staff member say we were too loud? He goes, no, 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 it's not a staff member. If anybody files a complaint, we have to check it out. And in that moment, he realized that Hank, had called OSHA and complained about the music being too loud at his church. And they sent a federal agent out to investigate. Orberg says some of the things were kind of funny like that. They, they told the guy, said, listen, it's a guy, Hank, you know, and they talked. And he said, we don't mean to make a lot of situations. The guy goes, no, no, it's okay. You don't know how much grief I've gotten at work for coming to shut a church down over music. All right. But they said the problem with Hank was that it affected other areas of his life. said, he didn't have a good relationship with his wife. He didn't have a good relationship with his kids. He said, in fact, his son had this amazing story about how he met his wife at a dance, but he could never tell his dad because his dad thought dancing was sinful. And so, Orberg says that his relationships all around him just deteriorated. He said, as I thought about Hank in the years that went after, he said, I realized something even more tragic about Hank's situation than that. He said nobody in the church ever expected him to change. They said, that's just Hank. 
That's just who he is. That's who he's always been. That's old Hank. Boy, he'll really light you up sometimes. You better don't get around Hank when he's in one of those moods. He said, the problem with that is, Scripture never says it's okay to stay who we are. That we ought to be continually becoming more and more like Jesus. Sometimes I think in the church we kind of settle for our boundary marker spirituality where we think I got all that covered and I'm okay. Maybe it's not the Levitical law, but it's the Baptist understanding. And yet God calls us to a life that is passionate about loving Him and loving others. And there ought to be daily inner transformation taking place leading us to those things. And unless our righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, we have missed the point. Next week, we're going to start talking about specific stuff. But just examine your heart this week. Is it growing in love of God and love of people?